20 years ago, thousands of hearts were lifted when the documentary by Dr. Raymond Moody came out called Life After Life, and that was chronicling the near-death experiences of several people. It made you look forward to the day of the big event. Well, since then, nothing else has quite touched me like Lisa Smart's book called mm -hmm. Words at the Threshold. And Lisa's with us today. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Hello. You know, I have to tell you, I was interviewing Raymond Moody recently, and he, at the end of it, we were chatting afterward. He said, do you know Lisa's work? You have to <laughs> smart. And I know you two are colleagues, but what you've done is a really beautiful follow-on to mm -hmm. his work. So, what inspired, well, I know what inspired you. Your father's final words inspired you to do this book. So, tell us a little bit about that experience. Great. Thank you. Um, you know, a couple things. I have to say, Raymond Moody, when I was 17 and read his book, Life After Life, I think that formed the, ver the seeds, the inspiration that then really took root during my father's passing. Um, while my father was a very rational man, he was also skeptical. He didn't believe in anything beyond this world at, at all. And in the last three weeks of his life, um, he began to speak in very unusual ways. And one thing my father and I always shared was a love for language. I was trained as a linguist. And we always had a very um, you know, fascination with how language reveals people's hidden thoughts and ideas. He was a psychologist and was very fascinated about how language was always sort of the tip of the iceberg. So, as my father was dying, I noticed changes in his language in terms of more metaphors, kind of nonsense, puzzling language. And then the thing that really struck me is a man who never believed in anything beyond this world started talking about angels were in the room with us. And that completely caught my imagination and curiosity. And it launched you onto a project. Tell us a little bit about the project itself before we go into one of the first quotes, because there are really so many heartwarming quotes and uh, basically situations that were relayed by participants regarding their own loved ones passing. So tell us about the project a bit first. Um, well, right after my father passed, I was very curious about final words. And being a linguist, I know there's been a tremendous amount of research done in language acquisition the words of babies and toddlers. So I went to my library at UC Berkeley where I went to school and I assumed there was gonna to be tons of material on people's final words. It seemed logical to me that that would also have been researched over the years. And when I found that there had been almost no research, I decided to establish something called the Final Words Project. And Raymond Moody guided me through the process. And, the and through the Final Words Project now, we've collected 2,000 utterances representing over 200 people's final words across the United States and Canada. Well, I thank you for doing that for all of us because, mm -hmm. as I said, this is kind of... Um, this is kind of the after story of Raymond Moody's work because these, the, his were from near-death experiences. These are from the words or lips of the dying, right? And there's one that you start the book out with that I just love, and it's from Stephen Jobs as he was mm -hmm. passing onto the other field, right? <laughs> his words, as, as, as splendid as his life was, his words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. So he was seeing something so incredibly remarkable that nothing in his earth life apparently came close to it. 
Yes, and you know, he was not the only one who had those kinds of words at the threshold, and that is what is remarkable. And oh, wow, oh, wow, it's beautiful over there, you know, Thomas Edison. And then the people that I studied, um, so many talked about something beautiful that they were seeing or something that was beyond their knowledge or sense of what they knew in this world. And in this, you, you, this book, you, you not only grace us with these really lovely stories and quotes, which we'll get to quite a number of them because they're so heartrending, mm-hmm. um, but also you tell us some practical information for those who will ultimately be sitting with someone they love who is making their transition, as, of course, we all will one day. And one mm-hmm. of the things you say is to never assume, no matter how unresponsive a person is, it doesn't matter whether they're in a coma or what, never assume that they are not listening to us. And this is really key, not just from the perspective of the loved ones, but the medical staff as well, which can be particularly disturbing to the person. Talk a little bit about that. Um, there's been a fair amount of research done now of, of people in comas. And what we found out, especially uh, Madeline Lawrence, who is a nurse, and a researcher, that people are much more aware than we would imagine. And in her research with coma survivors, people came back and said, it was so hurtful to me and almost offensive that medical professionals were talking about me as a vegetable because something was very much alive, even though my body may have seemed to not be fully functioning my consciousness was very aware. And matter of fact, some people reported even more heightened awareness in those kinds of states. So people seem to have some kind of consciousness, or at least a percentage of people do during, during those kinds of times when we think that they're unresponsive and not, not there. Right. And you said even further that some of these people have what we would call almost precognitive and a lot of telepathic type of experiences where not only do they hear what the doctor is saying, but they know what the doctor is going to say before they even say it. So there's some kind of a a larger mind melding going on, it seems, right? Yes, and I think that's very, very well articulated. And I think Raymond found that in near-death experiences, people had that. And then we hear from it, one person who was in a coma, she shared this story that she knew that the nurse and the doctor were having an affair, right? (laughs) She had this telepathic awareness and knowledge. And we also know from the research of Kenneth Ring that people who are blind, when they have near-death experiences, they can see in, in ways, you know, one person described the pattern on a doctor's tie when they left their body and had, uh, you know, left their bodies, right? So remarkable sense of that language goes beyond what we think of as language. And on the subject of language, what happens oftentimes is that people start speaking in ways or in words that seem totally nonsensical to those around them. But as you point out in your book, before we get on to some of that, that um, this is often the language of artists and poets, which really I found interesting because it shows us that when we're in the right side of the brain, in that creative zone, we're living much closer to the intrinsic aspect of who we really are, right? 
Yes, I think I agree with that. I've come to feel that way and agree with that. Yes. And, you know, Bach's final words were, and I, I may have a teeny bit wrong, but close to is, don't cry for me. I'm going to where the music comes from. Right? Yes. So there really is that sense of the poetry and something mystical um, and, and where, the, where, where the muse might live or the place where poet, poetry lives, which isn't literal language, but it's something different. Yes, yes, most definitely. So you're a researcher. You come from a family that has used a lot of their left brain, and I'd say with you, you have a nice combo of right and left. Um, and so when, when looking at it from a research point of view, once the brain is dead, you talked about it like what happens when we unplug the computer. Logically speaking, there shouldn't be anything left. But as you said early in the book, hearing is the last thing to go. And later on, you expanded to say, no, consciousness is the last thing to go. That there, How do you, in the world of science, struggle and ultimately come to terms with the fact there's something that transcends the physical model of mind and reality. Mm. Wow, so it's <laughs> a beautifully big question, and thank you for asking it. Um, you know, I think what I've really come to feel and think is that there is verbal and nonverbal intelligence, and nonverbal intelligence is, just, I mean, verbal intelligence is just one slice of what the human and spiritual experience is, of course. And you know, as a linguist, all my training was mostly in verbal consciousness or in, in relatively literal language, right? And what I came to discover in, um, in the research that I've done is to expand what my notion is of communication and language. And it goes much, much way beyond what I had ever imagined uh, would be the definition of language. And there does seem to be something that is, um, well, nonverbal consciousness. And ironically, the great poets seem to be able to capture nonverbal consciousness with strange and interesting language combinations and oftentimes paradoxical language. And those are the very kinds of language structures and forms that we find at the threshold. As people are dying, they start talking, as you had mentioned, almost poetically, almost mystically, and also often paradoxical, contradictory language. And one term that was used in the book, that while it may not be the physical brain that's mm. activated and talking at this point, it's what you called, or someone in the book called, <laughs> the user of the brain. Yeah, exactly. I love that term. Yes. No, I think it's absolutely true. You know, William James talked about this idea of me-ness, M-E-ness, that there's a me beyond this physical apparatus or this temple, right? This physical being, body. And, you know, what we find in, in all the research as you start looking at afterlife research and near-death research over and over again, you're hearing examples that when our bodies break down, something bigger uh, in terms of consciousness seems to emerge out of the most compromised states in terms of a body, the most uh, remarkable and whole uh, types of consciousness and awareness comes. So it's, it's, again, it's really changed my idea of what thinking and the brain and the mind is. I mean, I make a very clear distinction now, as I never did before, between the brain, which is the physical apparatus, and the mind, which seems 
to me to be, um, it, it seems limitless and infinite as I've come to understand it better. Well, that's part of Raymond Moody's new work, too. He's looking at nonsense or gibberish and what the true meaning and value of, his, of it is underneath it, because it's, his own, it's almost as though we start our life babbling, right? And we end our life in what seems to be babbling. And on both ends of it, we're entering in, in, in one, on one end, we're entering into life from a higher state of consciousness into this denser reality, and the other we're leaving from it. And so you're say, you say in the book also that telepathy seems to be the language of these experiences oftentimes, whether it's through dream state or whether it's through a communication from the one who's passing to another or someone that you can't see who's in the room with you. Mm-hmm. You say that tel- telepathy may very well be the original language between humans. Yes. Well, when you think about it, well, first there's been research with babies and parents and that there seems to be connections beyond just the crying, you know, the cries of babies and the parents' responses, even more telepathic ways of knowing one another, right? And I even had this when my mother was very ill and I was out of the country, I had dreams of her. I mean, so many of us can give stories of how uh, often those that were closest to uh, seem to have a connection to us that, again, goes beyond verbal consciousness or what we think of as words. And throughout my research, there were stories after stories. You know, one woman described how her mother really lost the ability to speak, and yet she just sat one day with her, almost in prayer, kind of connecting with her mother because they didn't have words. And this is as her mother was at the other end of the threshold. She was dying, you know, close to dying. And then... They didn't speak, and then the mother kind of got out of what seemed to be, you know, unresponsiveness, and a nurse came in, and the nurse says, everything okay? And the woman pointed to her daughter and said, yes, my daughter and I have had the most wonderful conversation, <laughs> but not a word had been spoken. And, you know, when I talked to psychics, you know, that we really, and so on either side, and when I interviewed these um, people have done research and communication again with babies and parents, they're just such so much more understanding than we oftentimes acknowledge or know and yet you think about little teeny babies so vulnerable we're such little vulnerable beings and yet somehow we're almost often taken care of by our parents who seem to know what we need when we need it so at either side of the spectrum that the the reality of communication that goes beyond words most definitely seems to exist from what i've seen Okay, I have a question that's just coming up here to do with babies. So when you have a really sweet story in the book about someone, who a, a grandmother who was talking with the little infant, the little baby, and they were babbling back and forth to each other very happily, and the infant was totally engaged, as the infant totally understood what the grandma was saying. And it seemed like there was some really kind of magical communication happening there by the witness of this. What happens when we take a little baby, I'm just digressing for a moment, yeah. and start throwing flashcards in front of it and immediately starting, start trying to mold its mind into the left side linguistic patterns that they're going to move into in adulthood rather than allowing this period of their own language 
You know, a lot of research that's been done on education and learning, for example, Montessori, you know, Montessori schools are proponents of this, say that it's really important to let children just naturally develop their language function organically and that almost everybody learns to read if given a chance. And I do think that... I, and my husband lived in Japan for many years, and many of the kids don't have a very structured educational experience early on, although we know later on they do. And I think there is something to that because, you know, the greatest strength is human beings. We know that when people learn to read, it involves both hemispheres. If you just read something on a page, I can do this with French. I could read French to you but I don't speak French very well. I can sound like I know what I'm doing, but I'm not creating pictures in my mind because I haven't really created. And so creating those pictures is right brain or you know, hemispheric function, and whereas analyzing the sounds. And really to be balanced is to me what we all want. It's, it's what I'm cultivating in my life. And, and I think we all want that. And I think the greatest thinkers have that ability to live in both ways. And I think if too early we try to get children to do just what you said, so that left brain analytical thinking, we're robbing them of developing this really rich imagination in the inner symbolic world. And when I spoke to psychics, for example, many of them lived in the realm of images and symbols, and that's how they got their information. And I believe that the ability to cultivate images and pictures, Einstein's greatest ideas not, did not just come from words on a page, but also from images in his mind. Um, so yeah, it's, yes, I do think it's important not to throw flashcards at a baby. <laughs> so yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I was curious about it. Um, <laughs> you, were, you were speaking a moment ago of symbols and such that psychics often use and some other kind of non-conventional communicators are those with Asperger's. And, you've, and you mentioned in the book too that oftentimes those with Asperger's really think more symbolically. They're more, they often have more telepathic and more precognitive experiences than an average person. And how did that factor into this study for you? Well, um, this was based on conversations I had with the wonderful psychic and medium, Bill Stillman, who is himself um, psychic, I mean, has Asperger's, and he's written, I think, 12 books on autism, and what he has found is just that many times these young people, because he was working mostly with young people, would say things, and people just dismissed, uh, dismissed it as nonsense, but when they actually looked more closely. There was all these precognitive messages that these young people were saying. So that they were living in a world of symbols but had trouble sometimes getting out those symbols and articulating them, but were giving little kernels of things. like um, So just like the language of the threshold may sound very cryptic or that it doesn't make sense, when we start writing it down, we start finding patterns. Uh, William Stillman did beautiful work on looking at the language of those with autism and found some real patterns and also the ability of these people to live in symbolic understanding that oftentimes were making sense of and communicating precognitive realities, you know, psychic, psychic information. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. Um, let's go on to some of the unique kind of signatures of going through mm -hmm. the sunset days, as you call them. Or the, mm -hmm. I think you call it the sunset day at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and that has to do with 
the, the person's ability to see beyond time and space, that they're often, they can be looking into the future, the past, or the present, and it's all, it all looks concurrent to them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I love the way you put your, thank you so much for articulating things in new ways that, that I've written about. Yes, that's beautifully put, yes. And so, I mean, this really is, I mean, you use an example in your book that I thought was really interesting, which was um, if someone on their deathbed were to say, the astronauts are landing on the moon. Now, in another time frame, that would have been complete gibberish to someone a uh, hundred years ago, for example, but it might actually be something that they're tapping into of a future reality. So what seems totally crazy may actually be something simply yet unknown. I think that's abs- absolutely the truth. And anything from, that's why it's so precious. You know, as my father was dying, I wrote down everything he said, and I've encouraged other people to do that because he turned out saying things that many of them that have become prophetic and again in kind of a cryptic language and you know one of the things to one of the stories final word stories was about john adams and thomas jefferson where um they were both dying on july 4th right you know this is it's such a great story and adams knew that thomas as he was dying his last words were thomas jefferson still survives so they were both dying on the same day and yet Thomas Jefferson had not yet passed away. And how did he know that? What is, what is, it just, you know, those are the kinds of things you see at the threshold that, that go beyond space and time, definitely. Yes, you just brought up one of my very favorite stories. I used <laughs> voraciously about Thomas Jefferson when I was a young one, and I just love that story about the two of them. And now we go to some of the, some of the experiences and we'll start with your dad, because your dad said that he was going to an art exhibition. And this really lines up with people's passions are what really surface in the last moments of life. We see the light in a baby's eyes when they come into the world. You know, everything's new. Not really, but <laughs> everything's new. They're getting ready to start a new path with all this excitement. And that same kind of joy often is in the eyes if not most of the time, of those that are getting ready to make the transition. Let's talk about your dad and the art exhibit. Yes. Um, my father, the, just as my father really, we didn't expect him to die when he did or how he did. And just before he started moving into this active dying phase, he walked out the front door of the house on a January night in his underwear walked down the street and the police of course stopped him and said sir and you know, what's going on here and he said i'm taking all these boxes to the art exhibition and um and of course that sounds completely nonsensical and crazy but it was a it was something that was very dear to his heart because my mother is an artist and for all the years that were married he would take boxes to the big art exhibition for all her her big events and what we came to find out at the time i just thought oh my god my dad's losing it what's going on and um and i thought we thought it might be medications or something which it turned out not to be and we i found that this is very common that before people die they will announce some kind of big event that's connected to who they are 
in their lives. Someone may talk about the big dance or the big golf tournament or something that's very connected to the interests or the passions of their lives. For my father, it was helping my mother with her art exhibitions and um, he was announcing this big event that was coming, which really was a metaphor for, for his passing three weeks later. But I just found that story really sweet. And perhaps one of my favorite stories in the book was, I think it was a woman named Andrea who was talking about her grandmother. Her grandmother, <laughs> her grandmother had called her um, and said, or had someone call her and said, please bring my best dress and my shoes to the hospital today. And so she brought a long gown and, uh, for her grandma and uh, her grandma went to the makeup table, started making herself up and putting her jewelry on and then just announced gleefully she was going to the big dance. And after she was all dressed up, sounds like she just passed on, right? Minutes later, just was in her bed a moment later and just passed on out of this life. I mean, what a beautiful story and what a beautiful way to go. And it's so, I heard, when I first heard stories like this, you know, Andrea's story, of course, struck me. And what's remarkable is how common it is, how many people in those last days are getting ready for a big dance. And, um, or again, I found out there were many people getting ready for the big golf tournament. <laughs> and um, it just, uh, it is, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And Jeffrey Holder, um, who is a dancer, I love these final words his, his son shared. Uh, he says, through the oxygen mask, the gurgling starts creating its own rhythm. Not sure of what I'm hearing, I look up to see my father's mouth moving. I get close to listen. Two, three, two, three. He's counting. It gets stronger and at its loudest, sounds like the deep purr of a lion. Then he says, arms, two, three, turn, two, three, swing, two, three down to three. So in some ways, people may speak of the big dance, and in others, they actually are enacting it as, as they're leaving, in the case of Jeffrey Holder. I read that. I thought I could just see him doing his thing, <laughs> his students. Yeah, I absolutely love that story. Um, I could just see him orchestrating everything among his dancers. It was <laughs> And another thing is a lot of people speak about being surrounded by a lot of people, others around uh, being surrounded by angels mm -hmm. or light beings of some kind. And I'll briefly share that when the day my mother passed, her sunset day, I was with her for the last few hours of her life and um, had to go take a little break at one point. And I held her hand. And as I held her hand, I just said, show me, show me your truth, your reality, just show me. And I saw her standing there at, she was 18 years old, 19 years old. Again, she was wearing a little green t-shirt and behind her was a group of light beings. And she said, mm -hmm. I'm ready, I'm ready. And she was, it was so peaceful. Everything about it was so peaceful. And so I knew that that was the day. And then as I walked out, of the room to go take a little bit of a break. Um, it was nighttime and there was, uh, the pavement was wet, it was raining. And all of a sudden as I was walking to my car, I was some, lifted somewhere else. And in that moment, 
I saw a vision of a giant redwood in the redwood forest falling. And as it fell, I saw its root ball coming up. And then I saw all the light pouring in on the other smaller trees around it. That she had been such a strong presence in our life. She was like a canopy over everyone else's life. And now the energy and light would shine in on the rest of our lives. It was actually very beautiful and that that tree would break down and its nutrients would feed the roots of the other little trees around it. And so that, that was my experience, my final experience of my mother mm. um, on the day she passed, which was just really mm. beautiful. Who could yes. argue about it? You know, and a friend who's quite psychic a couple days later said, I just checked in and did a meditation on your mom. She saw her, he saw her in the green t-shirt with the beings standing around her, you know. So uh -huh. this is how she chose to go back to a period where she had hope and joy in life at 18. Oh, what a beautiful, it's a, what a beautiful story. And, you know, Raymond talks about the shared death experience where there does seem like a portal opens. And if we're open to it and if we're not afraid, because death is scary in many ways, especially when we lose someone we love. But at the same time, there really seems to be this very sacred space and that we can tap into these messages and communications. And oftentimes they're very, very reassuring. And that's a it's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful image. Yes. Thank you. Yes, it was. It was very comforting for all of us. Uh, now we talk about crowds where people come out and say, whoa, who are all these people? <laughs> you have a story in there of a young girl who was dying of a, of a sarcoma cancer here. And um, she was saying, who are all those people? And her mother didn't understand. Her mother was not a spiritually oriented person by nature and just devastated over her daughter's passing but those are the words that gave her mother comfort is that she was in good company can you talk a little bit about the crowds of being surrounding people yes um other researchers have also found this david kessler being among among those that um crowds all of a sudden the appearance of uh, lots of angels or lots of people or light beings as as you referred to People start, well, my father did it. I started talking about the room being crowded or this young girl, as you had mentioned, and it gave so much reassurance to the mother. And it does seem to happen that as people get closer to the threshold, there seems to be appearances of uh, predeceased loved ones and also people that they don't recognize. You know, when in, the, in some of the final words we have, people will describe seeing a woman in a blue dress who's comforting to them, but not anyone they remember from this lifetime. So, um, and perhaps we only get to know really who those people are once we, <laughs> once we cross the threshold, but it does seem to be a very common thing that, that we really don't leave alone. As alone and as lonely as death may seem, it really seems that we are, that there are others with us. And you know, I was one of these people, I've always been, you know, spiritually inclined and I liked the idea. But, but I was someone pretty afraid of dying, like I didn't like to go into airplanes. And, you know, I had a, you know, you know, I was pretty fearful, and obviously I want to live as long as I can and as healthily as I can, but doing this research in the last five years and looking at these stories has really changed my own personal views about death and dying, and one thing is that I, I don't feel that we leave alone. I think there are beings around us. And 
Yeah, it seems as though it is a grace-filled experience, that those final moments for most people are very gracious. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting because you also put in there studies that have been done with death row uh, inmates, people who have died through lethal injection. And what was interesting about that was that the majority of the last utterances of those people, mostly men, were that there was something beautiful in life. It was a beautiful utterance. There was love surrounding them. They felt love. They had gone to that place beyond fear where life is now finished, right? Mm -hmm. And so even in that desperate situation, there was light. And it was you, you, the way you expressed it was beautiful. It was as though once you're standing on that mountaintop between, phys, between the other life and physical reality, on that mountaintop, life just softens and the beauty of it starts flowing out. Yeah. I think that's the way you put it. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, yes, and the re- that research was done in Germany. What they did is they just analyzed all the final words of people. And, you know, of course, there are those who are angry and and, you know, we've heard some of the mean and nasty words that are spoken um, at, at the end of life, not just with death row folks, but other people. But the majority, the majority seem to be um, filled with some kind of philosophy and reckoning with what happened. Yes. It's, you, as you pointed out and other researchers pointed out, um, you quoted from in your book, basically we die as we live, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you have a great deal of frustration and anger and resentment going at your death, then that is probably going to be somewhat, you know, it's going to be reflected in your final words. But again, it sounds like the vast majority of people, even if they have been upset or angry or bitter, there's this kind of breakthrough that happens in the final moment when something beyond is revealed to them. So even then, oftentimes, it sounds like there's some grace, even if they're going kicking and screaming, saying, in fact, you put that in that one example in your book, no, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And then, okay, all right, okay. (laughs) You know, that is, it's right here, I have it. Um, Maybe I'll read that, because it's it's such a remarkable story, if if we have a little time. Um, More than once, his father had quoted these lines from Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. After a catastrophic heart attack, followed by a week of treatments with no improvement, his father, the hours before dawn, asked the nurses to pull the plug. They did, and then called Jeffrey and his two brothers to let them know their father would soon be dying. As they gathered at their father's side, he somehow managed to hoist himself up to a sitting position in bed and quoted the words Jeffrey had come to know some, so well from his former vet, his father, a veteran military man, tough. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And then right before he died, he went, oh, bullshit. <laughs> and died. <laughs> but it was in that very moment, it's as if he realized he was not the master and that he just surrendered to something. And Jeffrey said he had the feeling that it was okay, that in that very moment, that very last moment, he surrendered to something with the awareness that we are not fully the masters of our faith. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, love, I love that story. It makes me a little bit teary. And speaking of, he was kicking and screaming a little bit, um, but here was one really magical transition that happened literally by a vaudeville magician oh, yes. named Jack. Mm-hmm. And as he was passing on, there was a hospice person with him. I think it was the manager of the hospice facility or something. And um, as Jack was, was dying, he was telling him, um, they're waiting for me. And no, he said, you're going to see a great magic trick. And he said, come closer. And then as the man came closer, he said, closer. And he said, closer, closer. And the man was only about six inches from his face. And he was getting a little uncomfortable with it. But the man's eyes were piercing right through him. He said, now watch this. Watch me disappear. And boom, right when he uttered those words, he died. I love that one. Oh, and it's still, when I hear you say it back to me, it gives me tingles again. The first time I heard that story, I just, um, and, and again, what goes on at the threshold is this magical language. Everything is intensified. And, and it's, it is almost the language of theater and drama and music. Uh, and, you know, art, for example, is the most intensified expression. And that's that kind of expression is what goes on at the threshold. Um, and part of that story, too, is, which is really funny. That I, I don't know if I put it in the book, but um, the hospice provider said to me that the, that the wife almost laughed when she heard that story. And of course, she was grief-stricken when she heard that he passed. But she said, he called you instead of me because he knew I went to phone for that. <laughs> she said, I never fall for his tricks. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, so she was sorry she missed his passing, but she also laughed because it was so characteristic of him that he knew that she had become sort of um, hardened, you know, to his tricks who didn't fall for them. So. <laughs> uh, well, I thought it was just the most charming and beautiful story. Um, and also, I, just to get back into kind of analyzing this a bit for a moment, back into the left side of our brains, sure. one thing we talk about in the book is, um, a lot of times people think that the person is experiencing just a kind of a mental disintegration and that's where the babble is coming from and so forth. And you point out that when you're looking at a kind of disintegration of that nature, the nature of the words are very different, for example, than someone who is under the influence of medications and is babbling. The qualitative experience of the people that are on medications is generally much more frightening and anxiety-filled. They're seeing um, kind of iconic representations of, you know, demons or snakes or spiders oftentimes. Um, It's not this kind of beautiful, gracious, uh, experience that people that are babbling on the threshold have. So really not to be confused with a chemical reaction in the brain, right? Yes, and that's information I actually got from, I, I mean, I heard from medical providers, from mostly nurses, but um, so that their experience was that the meds, oftentimes they, they made a distinction between visions and hallucinations. And they felt that oftentimes the hallucinations with medications were just what you said, more agitated responses. And when that breakthrough that you had mentioned earlier seems to occur as people getting closer to dying, and most people 
do seem to kind of come to some kind of peace and resolution with the process. Um, and to accompanying that comes more and more visions. And oftentimes it might be predeceased loved ones or beings of light or, um, and it's usually people, you know, loved ones who had, who had passed earlier who come to the bedside. And those are the most frequent kinds of visions, a very high percentage of people see these kinds of visions as they're going. And the babbling often tracks. Um, you know, we look at what's going on with the brain. For example, we know that um, glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, when people are doing that, it activates again the right side of the brain. And we know nonsense is correlated with that part of the brain, which, we, which is nonverbal experience. And so perhaps when people are having these visions and going to almost, you know, Raymond says another dimension, um, that the language function really diminishes and yet experience does not go away. <laughs> you know, the people are having very profound experiences. And when they're in that state, they're not always babbling. I mean, sometimes you can hear people having these remarkable two-sided conversations. There are stories where people said, on one hand, they're talking to their loved one who's dying, and that person's saying, could you get me a glass of water? You know, literal language. But then speaking to Earl, the ex-husband, who no one in the room or most people don't see, and carrying on two conversations. Now, this person's approaching death, so something is active in the mind. Something is, as we talked about earlier, it's consciousness. Something is going on, even though, by all accounts, the brain and the body is diminished in function. As you mentioned a minute ago, um, you were talking about dimension. Didn't your dad mention something about a green dimension? At yes. Yes. yes, he did. He talked about the green dimension. And then for me, what was synchronistic is my husband and I were um, moved to come to work with Raymond Moody after this process. I wanted to come out here to Georgia to, to work with Raymond. And we were looking for a home, and it, it's just a small synchronicity, but we found it on Greencrest <laughs> Drive and all the references to green. So it just it, green became a very precious, precious uh, color to me and word to me. I thought this would be a good time for us to get into some of the kind of basic guidelines you put up. You really put them right toward the front of the book, but I saved them for the end of our conversation is some of the things to be aware of when you're sitting with a person besides the lovely, hopeful messages that you've already um, shared with us today. And you're talking about these bullet points, which are enter the world of your beloved. Don't try to make them stay anchored in your reality. Now, dad, that's not what really happened. Remember this. Don't do that to them, right? Right. And imagine that you're stepping into a foreign country and you're speaking the language of those who live there. Yeah. And the other, another one is called um, have eyes for the sacred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because dying isn't always pretty, and it's also filled with a lot of grief and pain, and yet it's also very sacred. And if we hold what's going on at the end of life with the trust and the faith that it's a sacred process, then that's what we will see. We will see the sacredness there. And also, um, this isn't on that list, but again, being very careful about language 
when uh, doctors or family members are saying, oh, he's losing his battle with cancer, that's a very anxiety-producing thing for someone that's in a fragile state. And in fact, there was a study done in the UK, as I recall, where they had to reframe the language so that it worked for the person that is the subject of it to the word journey instead of battle and losing and such. That just, that seems really critical. It is critical, and language is so important. I mean, language defines and expresses our, our experience. So, you know, if, you, if someone has cancer and you talk about, you got to, you know, you're losing this battle, you're losing this battle versus let's see where the journey takes us. What a different framing of, of the experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, another one of the bullet points is to validate your loved one's words and experiences. So reflect back a lot of what they're saying to them in a joyful way because they are where they are, right? Exactly. And to validate, 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 validate. And so if someone says the dog over there is in the fence or we forgot to let the dog out, you go, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that dog and that fence. I never got to know that dog very well. Can you tell me a little bit more? Or, you know, just find out more on what's remarkable. If you do that, you're going to get jewels from that conversation. Yeah, and that's, that was the other point. Ask questions with genuine curiosity about where they are in this process. And it seems like it, it's very helpful if you can find a sense of your own joy and, and exploration in this process. Um, it's not just their journey, but it's your journey too. Absolutely. And I, I yes. And you know, I think that's hard to do sometimes in, in a time when we're looking at the loss of someone we love. And yet, the more we can open up to the possibility of the happening, it's, I think, healing for us as well as for the person we love. And, and it also invites us to a, even a, my connection to the sacred is so much deeper and wider and more profound by going doing this research and also traveling with my father to, you know, so closely because writing down his final words was really a way to join with him to, to, you know, as I walked with him to the threshold and, and I'm very, very, very grateful that I had that process. That's lovely. Well, um, you know, as I finished the book up, I, and was reflecting on all these stories and the fact that, almost everybody went away from this experience in your study with something genuinely positive, reconnecting with the real passion of who they were in life, with the people they loved in life, nothing of the perfunctory aspects of life. That wasn't present at all. It occurred to me, and the words that came through my, my mind were that it, that it appears that the final gift of this life is our own passing. Mm, wow. Yes, I think it can be. I mean, that's a very powerful statement um, that you're making. And I would have never thought that five years ago. And of course, I love being alive. <laughs> and, um, but I am certainly not afraid of dying anymore. And I do think that it can be done in a way that is not frightening. And also, you know, that light you talk, talked about when the tree fell, that is what dying can be for all of us. Um, and, and that is a tremendous image to bring with us, I think. Any final words? I'm not in that, <laughs> any final words in this conversation, Lisa? <laughs> um, uh, no, just that language is merely the tip of, 
tip of the iceberg in terms of who we are as human beings. It reflects a lot of how we see the world and how we filter the world, but it's not the last statement <laughs> about what it means to be human. Lisa, absolutely beautiful work. I'm so glad Raymond uh, encouraged me to get together. Oh, thank you. Thank you again. And again, everybody, the name of the book, Lisa Smart with two T's at the end of smart, <laughs> is Words at the Threshold. Lisa, thank you. Thank you so much.